popular question we get asked regularly is, how do I know if my customers are happy with our relationship? There's probably no better way to identify how to build better relationships with your clients than by using our Mindset Survey tool. The Sales Mindset Survey is a free-to-use tool that is revolutionizing the sales performance industry. This survey utilizes competing questions and the user's perceptions of themselves to identify just how well they truly perform. Are you manipulative or authentic, supplier or client-centric, complacent or proactively creative, overtly arrogant or tactfully audacious? There is no right or wrong and the survey will only be helpful as you are honest. But then why did you go one step further? We also offer a 360-degree perspective that allows you to share the survey with your peers and colleagues as well as your customers to gain even deeper understanding of how you sell. Do your customers see you in the same light of how you see yourself? Becoming a better salesperson has never been an easy task, but the journey can be made much quicker and more effective with the right tools. By focusing on those problem areas, you will join the top 10% of sales performers in the industry and make your way to the winner's circle. Why did you give the Sales Mindset Survey a go today? The results may just surprise you. The link to the survey is in the show notes. Now, on to the episode. Great. So, I guess whilst people are coming on to this session, um, I just thought I'd start by thanking everyone for joining. I can't believe it's been a month since the last one. Um, for those who are listening on the podcast and for those who are listening to this recording, um, you may recall that in last month's Air May, we briefly mentioned the launch of the sales transformation community. So over the last month, we've actually had quite a few people register their interests and um, we will be uh, formally launching it uh, later on this week. So please, if you're interested, uh, keep an eye out for it. Eddie, I think you're going to share the link to register to be part of this community in the chat function. Um, and for anyone who's listening on the podcast, uh, it is going to be in the podcast description. Um, and it's really exciting. I mean, what we what we want to do and what the purpose for the sales transformation uh, community is all about is bringing like-minded sales professionals together and to discuss on any topics that pertain to um, uh, to your roles in sales uh, and to be connected with other people who, as a community, we can help support us as as we uh, as we go through time. Um, so yes, yeah, so I just wanted to announce that before we start challenging Phil with any questions. Um, the other announcement that I need to make is um, to do with one of our alumni students. Um, so Grant Van Albrecht, I'm very happy to say, has written a book titled Transforming Sales Management and is hosting a webinar for the book launch where Phil will also be a panelist. Um, Grant will be introducing his new change model that was the result of his final project on the masters, Scared So What, and how people can use this model to embrace unexpected change 
and he'll be joined by Patrick Joyner, so the MD of the Institute of Sales Professionals, Teresa Moulton, Chief Editor of the Change Management Review, Will Bollander, who's the professor at Texas A&M University, and Eddie, I hope you've got the link to hand um, to share it in chat. So I think it will be a very insightful session, and you know we recommend um, anyone joining if they can. Super. Okay, so I can see we've got a few people who are attended. So Peter Grundy, hi, Peter, and Greg, Evany, great to have you here. And I really do hope you put Phil through his paces. It is one of my most um, enjoyable times of the month where <laughs> we get to well. challenge, challenge the big boss. Um, so any any questions, put in chat. Um, if not, Phil does have the tendency to pick on people who have registered and will probably <laughs> try and unmute you to get your inputs, um, just to give you a bit of a heads up. Um, great, let's, uh, let's jump straight in. And um, Phil, I'm actually, I, I warned you that I was going to throw you a, a slight curveball question. Um, don't worry, it's not going to be too hard. But I, I'm just interested to know what books have you been reading around sales uh, that you would recommend me read? Because I feel like I haven't read anything since doing my master's and I want to I want to get back into the habits. And so I, would, I wanted to start this session by asking you, what recommendations would you, would you give me? Um, well, I think the book that we featured in the last podcast, uh, Sales Enablement 3.0, was um, really interesting. And I think what was um, sort of quite interesting for me about the book was that um, – it is a very good holistic overview of what sales enablement is all about, uh, not just exploring um, the aspects of systems and processes, but also approaches to uh, sales uh, training and so on. So I, I, um, I really enjoyed that book. But uh, another book that I picked up is one that I have read many years ago and i think it might have been a conversation with you will that prompted me to open its pages again and it's a book called davine and it's got uh you will not find this book in any bestseller um books on uh on sales processes and i don't think the author of the book uh, or the authors of the book and i can't remember who the authors were um uh, would have thought of this book as something that pertains to um, sales. But uh, what I love about Duveen is it's a story about how an individual who's a, an art collector and dealer had used his skills of matching buyers and sellers together to create uh, an almost monopoly of the art world um during the i'm just trying to think now of the dates but during the the early 1900s and um he he his process of 
of uh, dealing with both sides, both both sellers, i.e. people who own these stately homes and mansions with lots of priceless works of art with buyers. And typically many of these are over in the States. Um, and his technique of, of, of matching buyers and sellers, I think we can learn so much from. And I, I remember one, sorry, just to go on just a bit more. I remember one of the, um, uh, one of the cases that, that was written about in the book, Duveen, uh, was about a particular, a particularly wealthy industrialist in America who wanted to be seen to be having the right art in his home. And, uh, he came into his showroom in New York and, and, uh, and Duveen said to him, sir, I, I appreciate that you are an incredibly wealthy man and uh, are really, you know, I don't doubt that for one moment, but I'm not sure you're ready yet to hang my art on your wall. And uh, I just love the audacity of that. But there's a certain authenticity about it because he really only wanted to sell art to people who loved it. Um and uh, yeah, the scale of what he did was on uh, at another level. So, Duveen um, is a book that probably will be slightly unexpected to people listening uh, to the show. Great story about a salesperson, and you can pick up lots of interesting sales techniques in that book. How about mm, that? Right. Yeah. So no, it was like a curveball. I mean, I know I've re yeah. read others, <laughs> but I. I can't remember them to hand, but those are the two most recent ones. <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot. That's but, okay. You know, I have to take my opportunities where I get them. Yeah. Um, great. Okay. So we we had one question submitted um, okay. from Gary Pye for, from an organization from SKF. called SKF. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he wrote in and said, for employees on an annual bonus structure, what other ways are most effective? successful to keep a sales team motivated throughout the year um yeah it's a it's a really in a, you know it's a really interesting um kind of question about whether an annual bonus you know structure or financial incentives are uh levers to drive a particular type of behavior or whether they're set up to um to deal with the intrinsic motivation that's required of a, a sales team to, you know, be fully engaged with the companies with which they they work, and I think the the two, um, you know, the two are quite often linked, i.e., bonus, commission, and motivation. But actually, I think they need to be decoupled, um, and that one should treat. Um, the two topics separate, you know, separately, and I'd be very interested to hear Greg's and uh, Peter Grundy's <laughs> um, perspectives on this as well, um, if we can. But um, yeah, I think that um, you know Gary's Gary's question about sort of long term sustainable motivation, which is the question that's that he was asking. You know, I know not just at the beginning, at the end of the year, but throughout the year. I think that that degree of motivation you can get when people can identify with a sense of purpose of what the organization is about and what, what they're trying to achieve and the values for which that organization kind of represents and being aligned with those. Um, so I think that you can have a scenario where people are hunting 
150% buy into their company's values and and mission and what they're on the planet to kind of achieve, accepting that they may not be paid as well as they could do elsewhere. And, you know, so I think that it's the purpose kind of concept that that really keeps them, as opposed to companies who rely on very attractive bonus systems working with companies who lack the sense of purpose. So uh, for me, um, uh, perhaps uh, rather, you know, sort of tunnel vision, perhaps, uh, I'd be interested though to get others' perspectives on it. Um, yeah, the bonus system addresses behavior, but purpose drives long-term sustainable motivation. Yeah. Um, but I'd a... be very interested to yeah. hear others others points of view i don't know if we, we could ask peter could peter i know that you spend a lot of time coaching uh very senior executives in companies and i'm sure this is maybe a topic that crops up in some of your coaching conversations so i don't know peter if you're online whether you would be prepared to kind of share your views on it uh yeah and um, there's my name so i'm sure it's me um... yeah hi peter it's so nice <laughs> to uh so nice to hear from you and uh, on the show. <laughs> no, thank you. Thanks for inviting me, and it's lovely to be here. I I tend to agree with what you were saying there, Phil, um, and I've long been interested in your views about the power of values and the power of purpose. I think bonus without purpose leads to... Um, some sales leaders in North America that I've been coaching talked about some of their people being coy and operated. Oh, yes. Nothing yeah. happens until you put some money in front of them. Yeah. And I think where we're coaching people to be more than salespeople, to be trusted advisors, then if it's all just about um, doing drive-by shootings because new business pays more commission than established relationships, then something's gone very wrong, I think. Uh, whereas most organizations, profitability is often built on repeat business, long-term relationships, and a forecastable cash flow rather than one-hit wonders, which you know tend mm. to come and go. Yeah, that's it's interesting because you've also sort of brought in some sort of other dimensions around around um you know, sort of predictable forecasts and long-term client relationships which which can be um significantly influenced by the way bonus systems are actually structured um yeah. so yeah I completely agree that um I mean that that in itself is a is another topic you know to what extent does do bonus systems kind of drive predictable performance and so on and 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 the right behaviors, but that what that wasn't the original question. But I I think it's still such a a big topic. Yeah. yeah so I think also just to come back to the original topic because I started to ramble onto one of my favorites. But anyway, <laughs> um, feel free. <laughs> I've, I've seen bonuses that work well to drive particular behavior, but I think they need to be ring fenced, very specific, and not the main reason why somebody wants to work for my company. Yeah. Okay. I wonder if um, if Greg has a point of view on it as well, Greg, if I could in involve you from SAP. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Phil. 
Um, yeah, happy to. Uh, the, the first thing I thought about when I heard the question was, was it specifically for salespeople that, or was it just employees? I can't remember how the question was worded. Yeah, it was, was, uh, it was for sales teams. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think there's a, there's a little risk in, um, if you, if you kind of prescribe a yearly bonus system to a sales team, you may be saying to them, or they may read it this way. Um, especially if they're coin operated or, or, or very motivated by, by money, they may see it as, well, if they're only willing to pay me on a yearly basis for performance in this, you know, uh, territory, perhaps they know what the customer base, they can predict what the customer base is going to buy on average every year. So it's not really worth, you know, quarterly incentivizing my, my sales team. We know what they buy roughly every, every year. Uh, so we just need that managed by a salesperson, or perhaps you know, it's perhaps it's a farmer's kind of a yeah territory rather than a net new name uh, t- territory. Yeah. So, but that 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 was the first thing that struck me about it, and then the, the the second thing is, I think we're 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 trying to mix both annual bonus payouts and quarterly, uh, you know, some more lucrative commission models for mm-hmm. hunter type salespeople. And less lucrative um, for more customer focused and value based, um, perhaps salespeople. Yeah. We're doing that at SAP, I suppose. So, yeah, you know, it's a it's a mixture of the two. Yes, um, but I think SAP as a company is one that's got a very strong um, sort of moral and ethical compass as well. Greg, would would you not agree that? I mean, I've I've certainly noticed yeah. that from. Our interactions with SAP—it's—it's it's got a. Yep, I would. Yeah, they're, they're in it for the long game for sure, and they and they yeah. have many many years with some of their customers, so they don't want to. Um, like I think Peter used the term "drive by," and they don't want that hit and run uh, mentality. Um, yeah, e- even though it does happen sometimes, you know, and, and and that probably depends on the salesperson and and how they motivate themselves. Um, but you know, a, a commission structure that. Uh, doubles down or trebles down if you if you reach certain targets or go over your targets will certainly motivate that behavior. Mm. You know, even if mm. the company values perhaps don't uh, sing that from the rooftops, they and 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 they won't they won't um, you know reject those sales either. They'll 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 celebrate them. You know, so so it's it again it sits from both sides really. You know, there's a there is a there is a very ethical. Um, backdrop to it but there's also room for um selfishness and and uh mm. you know <laughs> taking the money when it's there and, yeah you know so i mean i've always i've always wondered whether um you know whether it's possible to run a highly successful high performing sales organization without sales commission yeah, because I, I, it can it can drive very individualistic approaches. Um, customers are sometimes in recognizing that salespeople have paid commission bonuses are wary about what the salespeople are selling because it's financially self motivated rather than necessarily um, motivated out of a genuine interest in what the client's trying to achieve. Mm. Um, so what, what do you think about that, Greg? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, it is, it is, it's, um, it's a co- constant question that the business planners and the, 
you know, the people at the top of every organization ask themselves at the start of every year, are we doing it the right way? Are we motivating the team the right way? Look at our fallout of our, our churn of staff this year, perhaps. And how can we lost 15% of our sales team or more? Mm. Um, so they're constantly trying to refine the system and protect their overall financial goals. So they want to grow revenue every year. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> that may or may not kind of conflict with the behaviors and the commission structures that they want to change for different reasons. You know, one thing pulls in, in the opposite direction to the other and in, in a lot of cases. Yeah. So, they, so they, they're always trying to find that balance. But no, I don't think it's possible to have um, everybody in a sales organization not, not, not uh, on a commission structure. Um, okay. I don't think so. Uh, but it's, there's definitely room to, you know, you could increase the percentage of your sales force to a bonus payout or have, have more customer success metrics measuring them. Yeah. And then having that 10 or 15% that are finding new business, you know, in, right. in, introducing new accounts to the company, um, having them rewarded at a higher, higher grade. Mm. But at the moment, what's happening is we still have people farming older, uh, large and still very lucrative accounts. Um, and they're, they're, they're reaping big rewards from that as well. Whereas the workload and the, the effort may not be as um, significant as the net new name salesperson has mm. to go through to find a new account and to close it. So yeah, there's definitely room for, for improvement there and, and to restructure the whole um, yeah. Pay model. Yeah. And yeah. uh, Peter, I don't know if you want to add any more comments uh, before we go back to Will, but. Yeah, I think the only thing I would say is being practical, being pragmatic about these things that the salaries you offer have got to be market relevant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, I think many, well, many of us, certainly I have in the past uh, gone out to recruit people and found that my rather strange ideas about compensation meant that nobody applied. So there, there is always the acid test about your reward process that says, if nobody showed up for interview, then hello, you are not market relevant. You're not attracting the right attention, let alone attracting the right applicants. Yeah. That was okay. really interesting. It kind of um, segues into the next question um, around transformation and uh, I mean, Phil, do you think, um, well, there's two parts to this question. What, what is the difference between change and transformation? Um, but I just wanted to add, based on this conversation, is can commission and bonus structures drive transformation for organizations? Okay. Um, well, I think Greg is going to be very familiar with probably what my answer is to the first question. <laughs> about the difference between uh, change and transformation because we 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 covered this topic in so much detail um on the masters programs that we run um and we we often refer to the analogy of the of the caterpillar and the butterfly you know and uh, um you know change is not building a faster caterpillar you know change is a caterpillar transforming into a into a butterfly and it's something that's sustainable and it's something that cannot be uh, changed back you know so so really you're talking about a sort of fundamental change of typically values and belief systems 
And I think a, a lot of people talk about transformation, you know, and I think it's possibly an overused word. Um, I think a lot of people talk about transformation in the context of faster change or quicker change. And and that indeed might be the right word, you know, um, uh, to be used, but they use the word transformative. Um, we, we as a, you know, as, as an organization only use this word in the context of um, a very deep-rooted um, change of values and, and belief systems. And in the context of strategy, let's say, it's actually sort of taking a market opportunity that an organization has or a need to, to do a fundamental shift and recognizing that the only way that that organization is going to shift is if there is a fundamental change of mindset required. It's not a better CRM process. It's not different uh, kind of cell structures, but it's, it's a different way of thinking about how the business needs to be run and what's going to drive the business forward. And it's not every organization that needs to make that kind of change. So even though they may use the term transformative in the sense of high growth strategies, let's say, it's not necessarily transformation. I mean, we had a had a very interesting conversation this morning with the head of sales of an organization. He has about 2,000 salespeople inside his organization in EMEA. And he was talking about, uh, and he shared with me his transformation initiatives, and they've called it sales transformation. And when I when I looked at the initiatives, there were things like, um, you know, CRM, uh, sales ordering, sales ordering processes, pricing strategy. There were six, I think, six different initiatives that were being is sort of the pillars under which he was going to achieve this transformation. And my concern when I saw this, uh, this was, uh, it, it, is, it, is it really transformation or is it simply becoming more efficient at what you're currently doing by improving your techno use of technology and, and different processes? And it was only till we got into the conversation with him that he said, no, this is, it's not just about these initiatives, but it's actually what we need is a fundamental change in the way people see and think the way they want to do business. Um, part of it's connected with digital and digital transformation, which is a key part of their change process. Um, but a lot of it's to do with the way in which they engage with customers in conversation and use those conversations to um, develop new business opportunities um, because he was saying that his 30% sales target simply can't be reached doing things as we currently done it. And none of these initiatives that we looked at earlier was addressing that fundamental mindset change. So, um, yeah, so I, I think that, you know, the butterfly caterpillar analogy is a really, is a really good analogy for me. If you are looking at simply selling more and doing it 
faster, then you may be talking about being a faster caterpillar. But if you are looking at some more profound shift required, then that could be transformation. I was, I, 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 and sorry, your second question will um, link to that. Could you just repeat that? Yeah, it was, um, I think I now know the answer, but can um, commission structures and bonus um, lead to transformation? I, I, I really think they can support transformation. I don't know if they should lead it. I don't think the simple, you know, in this example that I've given you, if the organization that he was leading um, simply relied on a new bonus structure to get them from where they are to where they need to be, they simply wouldn't get there because they need to do something more profound than just looking at uh, the change on a behavioral level. Mm -hmm. uh, they they need to kind of uh, dig deeper. You know, I was, I was quite interested. Again, we, we meet some fascinating people on the podcast that we run. And the last, uh, I think, uh, I've, uh, one of the podcasts we did was around the strategic narrative. And I really enjoyed the conversation with Andy Raskin, who was talking about changing the art of conversation at the point of sale. And um, uh, and he was really making the point that we've really got to um, articulate our point of difference um, through a different type of um, a strategic engagement. And he gave the example of Benioff and um, and um, uh, sales, Salesforce. And, and he was using as an example that when Salesforce sort of entered the market, he didn't come in trying to compete one CRM system against another. He came in saying that why would you on earth wouldn't you want to do a cloud-based solution rather than uh, sort of an on-premise solution? Uh, because this is the way the world is going and you don't want to be left behind. And so the the narrative that you have, the way in which you sell um, uh, that particular story um, is, a, is potentially a, a mindset shift because you are not moving away from on-premise licensing features, advantages, benefits to a completely new way of, of doing business. Uh, and so for organizations having to make, you know, that that was an example of what I would describe as, as transformation because it it's going deeper than just um, leveraging, you know, financial models to sell more. So I've probably gone on far too long on this particular question, but um, it's a topic that's so close to our heart, as you know, that uh, tend to, uh, I tend to sort of go off on one a bit. So, Will. I'll stop. So, thanks, um, but Peter, Greg, if you if you've got any questions for Phil, please do um, speak now or, or put in chat. And yeah. otherwise, I <laughs> I'm going to well, continue. I, I, well, I know that, questions I, over it, Phil. I know that I know that Greg is going to kind of know. You know, I know that sort of some of the challenges that that SAP have, have faced. Yeah. You know. 
Um, I mean, when was it that cloud, you know, moving to cloud was first introduced by the organization, Greg? It was quite some time ago, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we started doing cloud and we used to call it on-demand products um, yeah. as, far, as far back as 2010. That's right. You know, That's 13 the, years ago. Yeah. yeah. But the transformation aspect and that, that whole conversation around transforming to a cloud company is is far more recent than that because... And that that just I just wanted to make one quick point on that, if I may. The, the yeah. um, if transformation comes with fear, you know, there's there's a big fear factor. Um, and if you take the previous point we we talked about the commission structure and transformation, yeah. that's that's where they, the the fear of losing your best salespeople who who may or may not be motivated by customer success, you know, losing them, and perhaps the business that they bring in every year as a result of you moving mm. too closely to what your your transformation might look like, you know, because I don't think they know what the the end product in the transformation is yet. Um, yeah. You know, it, it might be more customer success driven, less salesy, you know, uh, people managing accounts, but that's a, that they're afraid of that at the moment, you know, and it's, it's not something we're, we're, um, we, we have a big, legacy and that's part of our problem as well we're we're, we're around almost well over 50 years now um so we we've a lot to protect a lot of those a lot of account mm. bases and repeat business to protect or to renew every year um and i don't mean that in the cloud sense i mean that in just just pe- customers who spend money every year and um, yeah and we're trying to convince them all to to move to the cloud as well which is a big big ask for some of them um, so yeah, it, it, there's a huge amount of fear associated with transformation, even though our signaling and, and our, our message to the markets is very pro, you know, transformation, move to the cloud, mm. move to the customer success model, uh, value is all about the customer value as opposed to, you know, our earnings and our growth every year. But on the other hand, on the other hand, it's, it's still business as you, that's the, that's the, the conflicts and the fear, I think, that's associated with it all. It's uh, our, our markets and our investors and everybody mm-hmm. else wants to see growth. Um, and with, whether it works, whether they get that growth from the newer models um, or mostly from the older models remains to be seen still. We don't have the answer to that yet. I think, I think and, and I think yeah. people would argue on both sides of that, you know. Yeah. I mean, certainly to the outside world, it would appear that SAP is doing sort of major strides towards this ambition set out uh, 13 years ago. Um, but yeah. I, I know it's not been a, it, you know, it's um, it's not been an easy, a quick process. No. And I, I do recall this amazing quote from Forrester some years ago where, where the CEO was saying that the biggest frustration he has with sales directors, people running that, you know, the sales functions was it takes 18 months, you know, for strategy strategy ideas to be kind of implemented. It's such a long time frame, you know, so the, the border people can set out this noble vision to sort of transform the business. And what what was coming out was, a, you know, the, the time it takes to move from the board decision to execution in the field is is 18 months. It's, I mean, it, mm. it, I, yeah. For SAP, it might might have taken longer, but um, it just takes time. Some of these things. 
Yeah. And the people are central to it as well. Um, yeah. That, that's the other thing. When you talked about the different metrics, the different models they were looking at changing, it was really the boiled down to whether the people will adopt it and whether the people will get behind that. Those, yeah. those changes, that's that's crucial, obviously. Um, and it's interesting, in it, within SAP, the line of the business, as we call it, uh, HXM, it's human experience management. So it's the HR software, success factors, et cetera. Um, they have been outperforming some of their other lines of business for the last number of years and, you know, as recently as the last quarter. And I think it's because they speak that language of the people or they get there asking organizations to reorg themselves by putting yeah. their people at the center of it. Um, yeah. Uh, and COVID and all of those things help to, to, to drive that, I think. But yeah. um, it's interesting to see that they're outperforming because they oh, have that people-centric. Uh, yeah. I, so here's a here's another thought: was that if you take the the context of of the transformation question that was posed earlier, and you put that in the context of the economic reality of what organisations are need needing to face. I mean, I you know I had the um, had a conversation early on today with someone else um, about. Um, the economic reality of of the world. So I come back to the connecting with transformation, and and this lady was saying that, um, and she sits on the chamber of commerce uh, in her country and Germany, that a joint chamber of commerce that she was uh, on the board of, and they were talking about you know the challenges and the prevailing winds that organisations have right now with you know demand. Um, economic uh, sorry Peter I'll come back to your hand I've just noticed Eddie's told me your hand is up so I'll come back to you in, in just a moment and um, and she was saying that she felt that it's becoming more difficult for selling organizations to really uh, be relevant and she was saying that they've had a couple of regular customers who they have a really good relationship with, expecting that a deals would be closed in Q1 of this year. And they simply have not. And then she's gone back to these customers and said, how come? We know you really well. Uh, how come you've delayed it? And um, the customers were saying to her, well, actually, your selling organization simply has not articulated the business relevance in the context of the world in which we are now working, which is changing by the quarter almost and that your solution simply aren't relevant right now and that that sort of hurt hurt her you know um and uh you know we we're having the discussion about whether the um market dominance that some of these organizations have in their market sometimes lead them to being slightly complacent um and that um, you know, it, you know, by being complacent, they're not asking the right questions. They're not keeping close enough to customers. So I suppose I'm coming back to this topic of transformation. It's made me question whether, in markets which are tough, and you know, we're talking about economic crises. You know, listening to Credit Suisse at the moment, who've had X billion 
pounds taken out of their accounts in the last in the last month i think it was in christmas it was extraordinary over 100 billion you know um you know when you've got financial markets that are being stress tested and 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 supply markets being tested by uh, sort of energy does do companies default back to you know their original levers for driving growth and is that something which is fit for purpose moving into the future and uh, so we had quite an interesting conversation about about the economic reality of today forcing in this case this particular person to question assumptions she had been making about the efficacy of her own sales organization um, and that you know she was beginning to question how do we get this shift in mindset you know from the selling organization how do we change perceptions and i'm sure the answer is not going to be we give them a better bonus yeah it's going to be something else uh, anyway sorry peter i rambled on again and i think you put your hand up <laughs> no it's just um boringly going to agree with everything that you and greg said actually but a couple oh. of things that crossed my mind yeah one is that um i don't believe that commission and bonus systems can drive transformation. I think they can help it. I think yeah. they can people in the right direction. But like you, I like your analogy of the caterpillar and the butterfly. And it also made me think of Henry Ford's uh, expression that if I'd listened to my customers, I'd have invented a faster horse. <laughs> That's Whereas a great one, yeah. The car was the transformation. And similar, yes. I see it. Uh, with in my, my team who are coaching sales leaders in different parts of the world, I think we've actually begun to learn that for some of them, they want to talk about change. And that seems to mean, in some cases, being a better sales director. Whereas yeah. transformation, which the organization definitely needs, is about saying, well, my future is in leadership now. Yeah. And rather than being best salesperson or best sales director in the company. And um, transformation is about taking a wholly different view about where, mm. where I'm going. And finally, just to say how much I agree with Greg about the subject of fear, we did a mm. big exercise in a bank or far away from here where the perception was that cross-selling and upselling would be, would transform their treasury sales operation yeah and our research turned out that one of the biggest things getting in the way of people actually executing on cross-selling was fear that if i bring greg in to see my customer who's phil mm. the phil might like greg better um, greg might have better ideas i might lose out financially mm. i might lose out in terms of kudos and so the danger of having what we call a level five or level six confirmation with the customer was dramatically reduced because I was actually spending more time watching what Greg was doing and trying to mm. make sure I didn't get left behind. So I think we underestimate the value of quite primitive things like fear and end of sermon. Yeah, fully agree with that. Thanks, Peter. Yeah. And the, the, the equivalent in, in SAP just for your information, is um, the industry account executive who looks after every company in that industry 
and then the line of business executive, which is, which only sells one part of the product portfolio. So the industry guy can sell everything, yeah. and and the the LOB guy can only sell one product, like success factors, let's say. And they always try and you know collaborate with the industry, a eh? because he yeah. or she is in charge of the account, and they want to get their 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 product on the bill of materials. So that all that collaboration and fear is exactly um, correct in that sense as well. They they fear the other LOB who wants to get their product onto the bill of materials as well. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know it's all about how they manage their relationship with the industry, AE. and then mm. as you can see, we're having a conversation about internal alignments rather than the customer themselves. You know, correct. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and also in another organization, you know, unless the um, the, the highest ranking person who is a client business manager. And um, we're almost a sort of international statesman level. Um, unless he was interested in your particular angle of what you might be selling to his client, he might never actually get anywhere near them. Exactly. Yeah. Same. Same. Yeah. Absolutely. Same. Yeah. 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 And I, yeah, I think customers can, you know, they, they, they get this, um, you sort of conflicting conflicting messages from you know depending on who's selling to them and uh they uh i'm sure they also sort of play a role in in uh sort of you know maybe you know creating playing the model against of, each other yeah playing the model yeah. against each other as well which is interesting it's make, making me come back to the uh one of the earlier things we talked about is do bonus schemes work you know it's at the end of the day the, i suppose the question and it, this came back to my my kind of uh, original research that i did um around how do customers want to be sold to um and um that if you develop a selling system that's entirely based on how customers want to be sold to will you be more successful than if you didn't? Um, and uh, I, I strongly believe that's the case, that if you are able to develop whatever system and have very clever people designing, you know, sort of bonus schemes and incentive schemes that somehow sort of get it right so that the customer is always at the heart of the, um, you know, the, the customer is always at the heart of the thinking, if you like. Maybe that's the role of these business execs you know the, the the person who orchestrates you know who do i want to put in front of my customer you know that he is the person or she is the person that is the custodian of customer centricity in that sense yeah maybe that's it interesting i love this conversation it's really good yeah thank you peter and greg for chipping in as you have done it is really yeah. good. And Phil, I do, I've got other questions here, um, but I don't want to go too much off topic because I just find this whole topic yeah. of conversation in this AMA fascinating. Um, so hopefully it's it's not too left field considering what we've been talking about. But um, this question is around looking for the right mindsets when you're hiring someone. Um, and as we know, I think mindset is so so important. But what what sort of questions should I be asking to see if this person in a sales role has the right values needed to sell in the way that my customers want? So I guess it's um, 
it's about recruiting the right person for the team. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, values are one thing and expertise and competence is, is another. But um, I think that um, if, you know, if you, if you look at, you know, there's certain values, for example, that we hold very dear to how we do things at Consalia, which are around, you know, being authentic, being client-centric, being proactively creative and then tactfully audacious. So these are the four underpilling values that we look for, you know, for salespeople who may be kind of joining our team. And and so if you park those just for a moment and you imagine yourself that you're having an interview with someone about a potential role in an organization like ours, the question is, how would you, you know, how would you um now, what questions would you ask to determine to what extent does this person sitting at at the interview you sort of have these embedded in the way they think and work? And um, you know, you could ask a general question like, "What are your values?" Yeah, you know, you could you could ask that um, that question, and um, I find that. I mean, that gives you limited information. But for, for a start, I find that when you do ask people what their personal values are, they often haven't thought about them in that much detail. You know, it's it's a question that we don't seriously reflect on unless uh, unless you come on the master's program or whatever, where we do spend an awful lot of time looking at values and belief systems. Um, so what I would... Um, so, so that's definitely a question I would ask, but not expecting that you would necessarily get any information that would help you in an interview. Um, there may be some individuals who have really thought it through and give are able to uh, explain how they've got to where they thought it, you know, where they thought it through. And that is quite impressive, but I would say was, was rarer. Um, so, what uh, we tend to do is we ask people to talk about examples of things that they've done that have worked really well. And we would get them to talk about like pivotal moments in their sales, you know, career, um, either pivotal positive or pivotal negative. And we would ask them to describe what happened and we would um explore uh, not just what happened but how they felt after what happened happened um and then we would ask them questions that would link back to what extent do you think your your uh, what you've just described tell us and tell you about the values that you have yeah so um so we would um we would um, sort of move away, if you like, from you know, what what do you think are your core values and why you have them. But with these examples and illustrations, um, see if we could then deduce from those um, the values that we deem to be important. You know, at uh, at Consalia. Having said that. Um, the question that often gets asked is, is it possible for people to be um, trained in the values? Is it possible for people to adopt the values? 
And I do believe it is. Yeah. If they've got a growth mindset, you know, if they can demonstrate that, I do believe it is possible um, that it, it that you can help people embed those values in the way they sell. And we've got, you know, countless examples of where that's uh, kind of happened. Um, so if they don't necessarily come up with the right words, if you like, or the words that are closely linked with the values that we think are critical, you know, for the way in which which we do business, then um, it, it doesn't necessarily matter. It's growth mindset coupled with examples of sales opportunities and really drilling down into some of the detail of what worked and didn't work and getting them to reflect on it in an honest and authentic way. That's what we do to try and get close to the um, values. And and we also, of course, have our own self-assessment tools. You know, we have the mindset survey tool that we get people to do. That's what we do. Um, but I'm not saying it's the right way. And it could be that um, uh, the Peter, you know, Greg have got uh, other ideas to add. I don't know if we've necessarily cracked it because I think the art of interviewing is, is one of the most difficult things to do, actually, in managers. People are very good at hiding things or or presenting X when they really mean Y. <laughs> Great. And I'm just wondering if Greg, Peter, do you have any comments though, or any other questions you might want to ask Phil? I'll give you a quick comment on it then. Um, I, and I think Peter mentioned it earlier on as well, you know, how, how you design the sales criteria in the job advertisements can, can really sway mm. whether somebody shows up or not. So yeah, I think a lot of the job specs for sales roles are, are written based on mimicking others and based on what they think worked in the past, et cetera. But if what I was going to suggest was if the customer feedback has been collected, as in you mentioned it earlier in the call, you know, we, we, we didn't really, with your chamber of commerce example, we didn't really feel that your sales team were positioning the value in the right mm. way. So we're not ready. So that type of feedback, if we have a collection of that feedback from a various you know, different customers that the company already has, and they share that feedback, you know, in its raw form with perhaps a uh, an interviewee for a sales role, and just ask them what they think of that. What what are what are their thoughts mm -hmm. on it without without trying to sway them in a certain direction or not? Just ask them what they think of it, and, they, and where they feel yeah. where where they because those values will kind of appear if if they're given options yeah. like you would in in a maybe in a psychometric test or so. Yeah. Given the options, you usually know which one you're going to go with. Yeah. Um, and then you you kind of get an idea of where they are, and they could be, yeah. they could be very revealing. You know that that yeah. you know they they may or may not. But but plus, the the interviewee may want to may want to give a certain impression to get the to get the job, and they may want to tell the interviewer what they what they want to hear, <laughs> because they need the job, you know, and they want to earn mm. quickly, so. It's a game in that sense as well. You know, you're trying to identify an honest approach. But... Mm. Um, but you run quite sophisticated assessment center approaches, don't you, Greg? Um, you know, to to recruit. I, I think Will went through one of those. Is yeah, that right, Will. Yeah, but well, quite a long time ago. A now. long time ago, yeah. early in your sales career, you sort of um... my first interview as a DNA. Oh, very good. Yeah, at the time at SAP. 
he yeah. he failed yeah. it unfortunately he... <laughs> I'm only I joking. Didn't. That's a curveball I'm putting back at you, Will. That's a good thing. If you fail that one, that's a good thing. Right. I did not fail, but I, at the time I didn't realize the job was based in Dublin. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's where I used yeah. to work, yeah, in the, in the yeah. inside sales office. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But actually, it is it is amazing to see, you know, with some of the recruitment processes, the degree that organizations go through to check, you know, that 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 you know, at a competence mm. level, mindset level, a values level, um, that that people are are yeah. you know have 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 the right uh, qualities needed, if you like, for a particular yeah. job role. So, yeah, so I've probably given a rather simplistic uh, kind of response for Consalia's response, but I know that you know organisations have very scientific ways of doing it. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I- I just found that it was, it was it was always a conflict between you know is the organization customer driven or are they revenue driven you know are they sales driven you know and and uh, as a sales former salesperson I always found that you you were expected to be a sales driven person not a customer driven person yeah <laughs> so I know that's changing and the language is changing around it now but I don't know if it has actually changed that much yeah. for the traditional sales role that in itself is a big topic yeah. <laughs> Guys, I'm conscious of time, um, so I'll wrap up. But Phil, I don't know if you're even aware of this, but it's your work anniversary today. Oh, I believe. gosh, yes. So, so people have been sort of commenting <laughs> on LinkedIn. Yeah. How many years have I been at Consalia? Is that it? I feel like yeah. this is a lifetime <laughs> rather than a Consalia time. Uh, yes. Yeah. 17 years. 17 years. So what have been your biggest learnings? My biggest learnings? <laughs> gone, Will. I don't know. I think life is a journey, you know, and I, I think that um, I would have not imagined that Consalia is where it is today, 17 years ago, because we, we've, we've now got a very different uh, purpose, a very different vision to that that we had in, in the 17 years. I would have had, actually... Had no idea that we would have embarked so strongly on the um, sales education initiative pathway that we've been on, and I think that um, yeah, I feel as though it's been a brilliant journey. Actually, you know, I think that it's uh, you know it's it's been this mission of ours to help try and make sales the world's most sought after profession. It's still we're still playing in a very big ocean here. But we are making some definite inroads, and there's no question. And so, from that point of view, I'd say the last 17 years has been an amazing journey. But I have a feeling that it's only about now to start. You know, to to you know, we've we've grown and developed. But I think uh, I think the the um, opportunities are going to accelerate moving forward. Um, so I have the um, yeah, I have every in a, in the next 17 years. You know, if I'm projecting ahead, I can tell you two things. One is I won't be here. And the other is um, that Consali will be in a very different place in 17 years, which I think is going to be very exciting. Right. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. For and that. thanks, Peter and Gregor and everyone for your contributions. It's been great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you and thank lovely you. to have you both. And Peter, so nice to hear from you as well uh greg we've spoken to more recently but peter it's been a while so so pleased you're in contact with us yeah